the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing and engineering today's program. Enjoyed a great time at the downtown Bible class today. If you have never attended and you work in the downtown area, let me encourage you. Today was a Christmas program, so the uh, the uh, I guess it was the midday focused on the story of the birth of Christ. But every Wednesday, save next Wednesday, which is the Christmas week, uh, you have an opportunity to join with others for some time away to focus on God's word. They stay within the time frame and uh, some good, clear Bible teaching in the marketplace. So kudos to uh, Scott Gilchrist and the folks at the downtown Bible class. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Ashley Hales. She is the, the uh, author of Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. We'll also hear from Bob Welch, author of 52 Little Lessons from a Christmas Carol, the book, The Christmas Carol. Uh, we'll talk about, uh, hear from him and talk about that in the five o'clock hour. So I hope you can stick around for that. First, some of the developing news of the day. The sentencing of former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn was delayed in a dramatic hearing where the judge scolded Flynn and said he could not guarantee he wouldn't receive prison time. Legal scholar Alan Dershowitz told Fox News uh, that Flynn has three possible options to avoid a prison sentence. And in a victory for President Trump, the Senate on Tuesday night passed a bipartisan criminal justice reform bill. The measure will go to the House, where it's expected to be approved quickly. Fired FBI Director James Comey was grilled by House GOP lawmakers about former President Obama's knowledge of Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server, Transcripts of Monday's hearings uh, now show. And the White House indicated it is uh, looking for alternative ways to fund President Trump's border wall as both the administration and congressional leaders try to avoid a government shutdown before Friday's deadline. Federal Reserve uh, today did, in fact, raise interest rates for the fourth time this year, but there were other changes as well. And Hollywood luminaries and fans are paying tribute to Laverne and Shirley star and a league of their own director, Penny Marshall, who died Monday at age 75. Well, a federal judge on Tuesday delayed sentencing once again for former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, a surprise decision at a dramatic hearing where the judge tore into the defendant and even questioned whether Flynn committed treason before walking back his comments. The defense uh, asked for a sentencing de- uh, delay rather after U.S. District Judge Emmett Sullivan questioned Flynn's cooperation in a separate case and tore into the defendant and warned he couldn't guarantee that Flynn would get um, wouldn't get prison time. Sullivan asked both sides to file a status report due the 13th of March. Later on Tuesday, he ordered Flynn to stay within 50 miles of D.C. and give up his passport by January. In an op-ed for Fox.com, legal scholar Alan Dershowitz says that Flynn has a few limited options for avoiding a prison sentence. He writes, now that the judge has signaled his willingness to consider a prison sentence, Flynn has three options, none of them good. Flynn's first option is to ask the judge to throw out his questionable guilty plea. But uh, it will be difficult to do so in light of his statement at the sentencing hearing that he accepts his guilty plea and knew he was doing wrong when he lied to the FBI. Flynn's second option is to cooperate even more, but there may not be much more he can say or do. If he admits he withheld some cooperation, that could hurt him. The former National Security Advisor's third option, a nuclear one, would be to seek a Uh, to recuse Judge Sullivan because of the judge's prejudicial misstatements about treason and about Flynn being a foreign agent while working in the White House. Both the statements uh, having been walked back after spoken by the uh, judge. And the Senate uh, last night overwhelmingly approved a bipartisan criminal justice bill backed by the president after defeating three amendments pushed by conservative Republicans. Lawmakers approved final passage 87 to 12. The measure now goes to the House, where it's expected to be approved quickly. Its passage would mark a significant victory for the president and his son-in-law and senior advisor Jared Kushner, who worked the halls of Congress for months in an effort to forge a compromise. President Trump congratulated the Senate soon after the measure's passage, tweeting, 
America is the greatest country in the world, and my job is to fight for all citizens, even those who have made mistakes. This will keep our community safer and provide hope and a second chance to those who earn it. What did uh, Obama know? That's the question being raised. Transcripts of former FBI Director James Comey's closed-door testimony before House Republicans has raised questions over how um, how former President Barack Obama could have determined that Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server while Secretary of State didn't imperil national security if the FBI never briefed him on the investigation. In a second meeting this month with lawmakers, Comey was asked about remarks uh, Obama made during a 60 Minutes interview in October of 2015. The president, uh, then President Obama, said of the email matter that it wasn't a situation in which America's national security was endangered and that Clinton never appeared to hide anything. Representative Trey Gowdy asked uh, Comey if he had ever spoken with Obama about the Clinton email investigation, to which the ex-FBI chief replied, no. He said he never directed anyone at the bureau to do so either. And as congressional leaders continue negotiations to avert a partial government shutdown at the end of the week, the White House has indicated it's looking for alternative ways to fund the president's signature campaign promise of a border wall without a government funding lapse. Uh, The president has demanded $5 billion, or at least had, in funding for the wall, estimated to cost roughly $20 billion and $25 billion. Uh, Rather, between the two, Democrats uh, countered with a $1.3 billion offering on the condition it was for fencing and not a wall. It might have been a mere difference in semantics. However, a Senate Democrat aide told Fox News that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell proposed $1.6 billion for border security, which would include fencing, not a concrete wall, as Trump promised his supporters, and a $1 billion slush fund for Trump to use for his immigration agenda. Democrats rejected that offer. Trump on Tuesday took to Twitter in defense of his desired wall along the U.S.-Mexico border, describing it as an aesthetically pleasing, not concrete structure that will also offer the necessary protection for the country. At the White House, there were signs that the administration was backing down on its previous uh, tough demands for the $5 billion funding. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders told reporters they were disappointed that the Senate hadn't voted on anything and said the White House was looking at every avenue to find additional funding, including having funds redirected or reprogrammed from other departments. In the coming days, the House and Senate will likely approve some form of short-term spending measure to avert a partial government shutdown in the wee hours of Saturday morning. If there is no action, then nine federal departments would close just days before Christmas. We'll talk more about what that might mean. Instead, a tentative stopgap package simply re-ups the remaining seven spending bills at current levels through the 8th of February. And all eyes were focused on the Fed. Uh, Policymakers there at the central bank concluded a two-day meeting today during which they uh, raised the benchmark federal funds rate for the fourth time this year. And on this day in... 1998, President Bill Clinton is impeached by the Republican-controlled House for perjury and obstruction of justice. He was subsequently acquitted by the Senate. And on this day in 1975, John Paul Stevens is sworn in as an associate justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. He would retire in 2010. And on this day in 1957, Meredith Wilson's musical play, The Music Man, opens on Broadway. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Ashley Hales, author of Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, anticipating a conversation with Ashley Hales, author of Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. While the phrase government shutdown is being bandied about, probably no two words strike more fear in the hearts of Washington politicians. The fact that another shutdown might have been imminent, although it seems less so today than it was yesterday, is a sign of how dysfunctional Washington's budgeting process actually is. What was once an orderly process where timeliness... uh, um, was important. Um, timelines were met. That's morphed into a political game plagued by brinksmanship and out-of-control spending. Well, despite promises from Congress that the process would be different this year, well, 
Here we go again. This time, the biggest issue holding up the deal is the confrontation between the president and congressional Democrats over border security funding. As Congress barrels towards Friday spending showdown, the potential of a partial government shutdown is very real. Although, as I mentioned earlier, less likely than it was just a day ago. But what would it actually mean? A shutdown wouldn't be good, of course, but it's not as scary as we've been led to believe. There wouldn't be lawlessness in the streets. You'd still get your Social Security check. Well, here's what a shutdown and an alternative uh, alternative might actually look like. Now, if Congress and the president are unable to reach an agreement by Friday, then the federal government will enter into a partial shutdown. Five of 12 annual spending bills become uh, uh, became law in September, rather. That includes the military, so there's no threat of national defense. It also includes the departments of Labor, Health and Human Services, Interior, and Veterans Affairs. In fact, 75% of the discretionary budget has already been funded through September of 2019. Still, a partial shutdown would mean that major federal agencies, such as the Departments of Agriculture, Commerce, Justice, Homeland Security, State, and Transportation, would be left without funding. Well, many of the services they provide uh, would not be interrupted. 420,000 essential federal employees would continue to work, including 41,000 law enforcement and correctional officers and up to 88 percent of Department of Homeland Security employees. America's safety would not be sacrificed. You shouldn't worry about your benefit payments being impacted either. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid payments, as well as veterans benefits would continue uninterrupted. These programs don't delay on Congress uh, taking a rather rely on Congress taking action for annual funding to continue or their appropriations were already passed into law. And I think I talked yesterday about how much of uh, government spending is on autopilot. Mail service would also continue as scheduled since the Postal Service has its own revenue stream. National parks would remain open, though with reduced staff. About 380,000 federal employees would be furloughed for the duration of the shutdown, meaning that they wouldn't be paid nor expected to work. Agencies that would be most affected include the Department of Commerce, NASA, the IRS, and HUD. Based on past government shutdowns, all furloughed em- uh, employees would likely be paid when the shutdown ends, which typically is a day or two. Another possible outcome to get around the uh, current funding impasse is for Congress to pursue a continuing resolution to keep the government open. That seems to be the direction that we're likely to see. That scenario played out as the last funding deadline approached on December 7th. Under this situation, agencies would operate at their 2018 budget levels for the duration of the continuing resolution. Congress could choose to extend funding for a short period of time, likely into early 2019, or just opt uh, for a full year of continuing resolution. Passing a full-year continuing resolution would put an end to the budget drama for this year. However, it would also leave both Republicans and Democrats unsatisfied with the president not getting additional border security money and Democrats unable to enact some of their priorities. But it would save taxpayers money. If unfunded agencies simply continue to receive money at the 2018 level, it would uh, cut spending by $11 billion. It's not a lot, but with the national debt soon expected to cross the $22 trillion mark, Um, Every penny counts. Regardless of what actually happens, one thing is clear. The budget process is broken, has been broken, and I'm guessing will likely continue to be broken. And taxpayers are the real losers. When Congress is constantly budgeting by crisis, it erodes oversight, leads to wasteful spending. Citizens should demand that Congress not only make the budget process better, but also ensure a sustainable uh, budget future. Cost of failing to do so, that is much scarier than a a government shutdown, which, um, again, we might be facing. So uh, government is already 75 percent funded through the end of fiscal year um, 2019, September 30th. That includes the departments I've mentioned. Um, So it's not quite the panic that uh, some would have us believe, primarily for political purposes, so that we would uh, be frustrated and angry at one side or the other for putting us in this situation. Well, the Senate voted 87 to 12 Tuesday to pass a major criminal justice reform bill known as the First Step Act. And the measure is expected to win House passage this week and then be signed into law by the president. A similar version of the bill overwhelmingly passed the House in May, 360 to 59, leaving little doubt that the House will approve the Senate version. House Speaker Paul Ryan has expressed support for the legislation and the president has also endorsed it. The president tweeted last night that the First Step Act will keep our community safer, provide hope 
and a second chance uh, to those who earn it. In addition to everything else, billions of dollars will be saved. I look forward to signing this into law. Well, the First Step Act applies only to federal criminal justice uh, system, the system. Uh, there are currently eight, 181,000 people in the federal prisons as of this month. At the end of 2016, uh, there were about 1.3 million inmates in state prison and another 741,000 in local jails. The First Step Act does many things. It reduces sentences for drug felonies and other nonviolent crimes, prevents the use of restraints on pregnant prisoners during childbirth, and limits the disparity in sentencing dealing with crack and uh, powder cocaine. Uh, this last provision could benefit thousands of federal prisoners. The bill also allows uh, prisoners to earn good time credits to reduce their time in prison if they participate in education and other programs designed to prepare them for life outside prison so they don't commit more crimes after they are released and wind up back in prison. In other words, reduce recidivism. The Republican Study Committee has said the goal of this part of the bill is to reduce recidivism by allowing low or minimum risk prisoners to earn time credits toward early transfer to pre or pre-release custody, such as a halfway house, if they participate in certain recidivism reducing programs while in prison. Again, it's expected that the House will pass its version sometime this week. Owners of bump stocks have 90 days to destroy them beyond repair or surrender them to the government. The Trump administration announced yesterday, spokesman Sarah um, Huckabee Sanders made the announcement at the White House news conference saying, on another note, the president is once again fulfilling a promise he made to the American people. And this morning, the acting attorney general signed the final rule, making clear that bump stocks are illegal because they fail or rather they fall within the definition of machine guns that are banned under federal firearms law. A 90-day period now begins, which um, uh, persons and possessions of bump stock devices must turn those devices uh, to an ATF field office or destroy them. By the 21st of March, instructions for proper destruction will be posted on ATF's website today, which was yesterday. Well, bump stocks um, harness a a gun's recoil energy. It allows the shooter of a semi-automatic firearm to continuously fire the weapon with a single pull of the trigger. On the 1st of October, back in 2017, a man used uh, bump stocks as he fired on people attending an outdoor concert in Las Vegas. As the government noted in its proposed rulemaking, the bump stocks attached to the shooter's semi-automatic rifle allowed him to fire several hundred rounds of ammunition in a short period of time killing 58 people and injuring over 800. Well, the United States is putting in place a regional plan to allow Central Americans and Mexicans to remain in their countries and not have to immigrate. American officials uh, pledged $5.8 billion in aid and investment on Tuesday for strengthening government and economic development in Central America and another $4.8 billion in development aid for southern, southern rather, Mexico. The plan, which aims to promote better security conditions and job opportunities, was announced in a joint U.S.-Mexico statement released by the State Department and read aloud by Mexican Foreign Relations Secretary Marcelo uh, Ebrard of Mexico City. In sum, I think this is good news, very good news for Mexico, he said. Newly inaugurated President um, uh, Abrado waxed poetic about the plan to provide jobs so people won't have to immigrate. I have a dream that I want to see become a reality that nobody will want to uh, go work in the United States anymore, he said at a morning news conference before the announcement. He previously suggested that about $25 billion in U.S. investment would be an appropriate figure for what Mexicans and Central Americans have dubbed the Alliance for Prosperity in the region. That's a lot of money, and we couldn't um, couldn't manage to fund border fencing, wall, whatever you want to call it. Well, the White House press secretary, um, she on Tuesday said that the president has asked every agency to look and see if they have money that can be used to build a border wall. During a White House press briefing, she asked for uh, to clarify, rather, the White House's current position on the continuing resolution to fully fund the federal government, whether Trump is willing to accept one point six billion dollars for the wall and whether he'll support the continuing resolution to revisit the matter after the Christmas break. You know, at this point, the Senate has thrown out a lot of ideas. We're disappointed in the fact that they have yet to actually vote on something and pass something. So when they do, we'll make a determination. The president has asked every one of his cabinet secretaries to look for funding that can be used to 
uh, protect our borders and give the president the ability to fulfill his constitutional obligation to protect the American people by having a secure border. So we're looking at the other options. In the meantime, we'll see what the Senate does and we'll uh, let you know when we have an announcement on that front. So looking for funding from other agencies, whether or not the president has the unilateral authority to uh, collect that money for this purpose remains an open question. 32 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Ashley Hales, finding holy in the suburbs, living faithfully in the land of too much. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, more than half of Americans live in the suburbs. My next guest, Ashley Hale, she writes that of many Christians, however, the suburbs are ignored, denigrated, and demeaned, or seemed as a cop-out from a faithful Christian life. In everything from books to Hollywood jokes, the suburbs aren't supposed to be good for our souls. What does it look like to live a full Christian life in the suburbs? Suburbs reflect our good, God-given desire for a place to call home. And suburbs also reflect our own brokenness. Well, this book is an invitation to look deeply into the soul as a suburbanite, suburbanite, I know I can say the word, and discover what it means to live holy there. Well, I'm talking about the book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. Ashley Hales is a writer, speaker, pastor's wife, and mother of four. She holds a PhD in English from the University of Edinburgh, Scotland, and her writing has been featured in Books and, uh, and Culture, the Inglewood Review of Books, the Gospel Coalition, and Christianity Today. She joins us today to talk about her latest book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Now, for those of us who live in the city, we might need some uh, something of a primer on on the difference between living in cities or in rural areas and the suburbs that makes this the subject of of your book, which I think has something to say to all of us. But I want to at least begin there. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think that, you know you see the word suburbs, and if you don't actually live in the suburbs, you can feel like, oh, this book isn't for mm-hmm. me. Um, but I think the really what I do try to talk about in the book is kind of a, a suburbs of the soul and the ways that our places and our geography fashions our values and our affections and our desires. And so even if we do end up living, you know, downtown in a city, things like busyness and, you know, this focus on the individual, um, the focus on safety can really affect us wherever we live. So I would encourage, yes, city dwellers, pick up the book. You will find a lot to relate to. You write that the suburbs are full of younger brothers trying to clean up their act to be accepted, to work harder, be responsible, tone down impulse and pleasure to fit into a buttoned up world. But the suburbs are also full of elder brothers turning their nose up at the lavishness of grace because we've worked hard for what we've earned. Uh, You make a reference to the um, uh, the prodigal son and his brother and mm-hmm. their their perspective on life help us to understand what they can teach us about how place influences um, our worldview and how we live out our Christian life. Mm, yeah, you know, it, the parable of the prodigal sons is one that I've come back to quite a lot, and it really anchors the book um, because what it looks like is I wanted to know, you know, if God is good, if he's like that father in the parable, how does he relate to his children? And I think we can see ourselves either as kind of that younger brother who goes off and says, I don't want anything to do with the father. I don't want, I will make it on my own. Um, And then we see it also in, in the son who stays and he tries to pull himself up by his bootstraps and do the best he can. And yet even then he's not actually loving the father, right? He just wants all of the inheritance. And so we see in that parable, both of these brothers who are lost um, and that the father, our father in heaven comes and he grows to meet both of them, whether we're lost in, you know, repudiating the goodness of the father and saying, I'm going to go make it on my own, or if we're lost in following all the rules. And so I see a lot of people here in the suburbs who tend to be rule followers. You know, they've lived a good life. They have a successful job and career. Um, But I think we don't realize that when everything looks good on the outside, sometimes the ways that our own souls are kind of withering inside. And I think uh, the book and, of course, the gospel of Jesus has, has a better message for us, that our places form who we are, they form our desires, and yet we can still live 
full Christian gospel-oriented lives wherever God has put us. But you seem to be suggesting, and I think you make the point in the book, that we need to be intentional about it, because if if we're not, we can find ourselves sort of in the uh, lap of luxury, luxuriating in the comfort without looking outward and seeing what God has called us to beyond our own comfort and what's familiar. Exactly. And I think, unfortunately, um, for those of us that for those of us in the suburbs who have a relative amount of affluence or privilege, um, we can get really comfortable in that. And the, the gospel call, right, is to always go out and to find the weary and the brokenhearted and the people on the margins. Um, and sometimes that looks like someone just right across from your white picket fence. Um, some, it's not always, you know, going out to do something to help someone down the road. Um, but I think I'm just encouraging folks to say, hey, there are broken people all around you, and there's people who need the gospel of Jesus all around you. And just to reckon with what does it look like to both love our suburbs and to repent of the ways in which our places have misshaped our desires. Mm-hmm. You write again from Finding Holy in the Suburbs, um, our, place, uh, our places are good gifts. Home is how we begin to know who we are. Yet when we use the gifts of our place, when we use the suburbs as ultimate things, like Pastor Tim mm-hmm. Keller is fond of saying, we worship them. This book is a gentle call to all of us in the suburbs to come home, to find belonging, not in what we buy or how uh, we constantly center ourselves, but in loving God and our neighbor. And that mm-hmm. is a challenge to every believer, but perhaps there is a unique feature to um, that challenge when living in the suburbs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think those of us in the suburbs, sometimes it takes a longer time for us to get to the end of our rope, you know, than the, the story of the prodigal son who, you know, when his money ran out and everything turned horrible, he knew his need. Um, and so the challenge is for those of us who don't know our need quite as desperately to begin to kind of press into those hungers um, and to get a community of people around you who want to press into those hungers and continue to look outward. Now, how has your perspective, uh, your perception of life in the suburbs changed over time? You know, I grew up in the suburbs, um, and then my husband and I, we've kind of moved around to kind of mid-sized cities. We lived overseas in Scotland for graduate work. Um, And so there was a sense, I think, growing up that it was safe, it was great, it was wonderful. Um, And then I think as I got older, it became like, you know, you don't ever move home the suburbs are boring, you know, just very like Hollywood trope. (laughs) But I think, you know, as we have experienced this call to move back to the suburbs to realize, I think I can tend to think of it as, you know, where culture goes to die. But um, I have found beautifully broken and cultured and lovely people here in the suburbs, um, people who need Jesus, people who spur me on, people who are doing great cultural work. Um, So, I think I have, whenever I actually look at my place and I walk and I meet people um, and I reach out to people, I'm always surprised at the goodness that God brings into my life. So I think just to encourage all of us, I think it's really easy, right, to think, to paint with broad brushstrokes until we actually get to the particularities of our particular neighborhoods and places and spheres of influence that God has put us in. Mm. Now, why did you choose to write a book about living in the suburbs? And was there some mitigating circumstance or event that said, I need to share this perspective with others? Yeah, well, we had just moved from Salt Lake City uh, to plant a church back a few miles from the hospital my husband was born in. Um, And I realized from all of these moves that that had kind of been the narrative that I had used to tell my story about who I was and how God was working and growing me. Um, And then I realized as I moved home, I kind of had this roadblock of what does it look like to move home as a grown adult? And what does it look like to be in this land of plenty when there's so many people I know who are, you know, living overseas as missionaries or doing quote unquote big things for God. And is this an okay calling to be here, um, to be relatively comfortable? Um, How will, how will people, you know, react to us? Um, Can you live on mission here in the suburbs? And so it really was precipitated by my own desire to both reach out to people um, as a church planter and his wife, um, but also just because I was, I realized I had used my own place and my own moves away from home as markers of I've made it and I've arrived. And so it was a big reckoning with, you know, I can have a very small, ordinary life and that is beautiful and God honoring too. Um, you say that you've connected your sense of mission and calling often more to where we live than how mm-hmm. we live. 
uh, mm-hmm. where we do. And that's such an important thing because we all live mm-hmm. in such different places. Um, that may not be the right question. It's wh- you know how we live. Mm, yeah, I think that's really important to remember, because even if, you know, you're living in some worldwide city and doing all of these great, huge things, or if you're working in the slums of India or in, you know, an inner city in Los Angeles, like we still have neighbors, we still have family members, we still have jobs and paying the bills. And so how we do even those small things is pretty universal. Now, the um, the title of your book is Finding Holy in the Suburbs. What does um, what does your book teach us about place that can help us to find holy when we live in the suburbs or for that matter, wherever we live? Mm, yeah, you know, I think um, I think most of us don't look at the category of place as something that affects us particularly or mm-hmm. something that sh- shapes us. We, you know, we we look to our jobs, we look to our families, we look to, um, you know, our our doctrine or, you know, our church attendance, we look to all these other outward markers of identity. And so my hope in Finding Holy in the Suburbs is to say place needs to be an important category that we also consider in how it shapes us and forms us, and it's not neutral. Um, And so as we look at how do I live a God-honoring life, how do I spread the gospel right where I am, um, we need to reckon with what are what are the cultural values of my place, and then how do I both affirm the things that are good there, as well as call parts of that culture towards repentance, so that we can all live in light of God's sense of He call He's calling us as sons and daughters of God. We're going to continue our conversation again. We're talking about the book "Finding Holy in the Suburbs: Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much." And I think most of us in America live in the land of too much, uh, perhaps some places more so than others. We're going to continue our conversation with Ashley Hales in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we're continuing our conversation this afternoon with Ashley Hales. Ashley is a writer, speaker, pastor's wife, and mother of four. She holds a Ph.D. in English from the University of Edinburgh, Scotland. And after uh, years away, she's back in the Southern Californian suburbs, helping her husband plant a church, Resurrection, Orange County. She writes in uh, her book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much, that our souls suffer in the suburbs when we have the financial means to always fill our needs, where we sleep on feather beds and eat rich foods. If famines and failure do not lead us to see our bloated but starved souls, then as people on the way, we must practice the discipline of being curious about our small hunger pains. This hurts. It brings us to our knees when we realize our hungers have been numbed. You write a lot about um, hunger and thirsting for the right things. Uh, Talk a little bit about um, individualism, consumerism, safety that doesn't just plague suburban living, but living all across the fruited plain. Mm, Yeah. You know, I think the idea of hunger right, is that it's the guess. St. Augustine idea that our hearts are restless until they rest in God and that God's created with hunger. He's, he's created us with desires that can only ultimately be fulfilled by him. And yet we tend to look at these kind of suburban idols, the idols of our place uh, to fill those hungers. So like you mentioned, some of them are consumerism. We, we go from purchase to purchase and, I'm hitting close to home, I'm sure, as we're all finishing up <laughs> yeah. our Christmas shopping. But um, I, I know it myself, too, right, that we think once we buy something that um, we'll, we'll be satisfied. Or, you know, like the I buy the water bottle and suddenly I'm going to become healthy. And so we, we pin our hopes about our identity onto a product um, or individualism where everything revolves around us or our nuclear family. And we are less concerned with the good of the community, whether that's our neighborhood or our church um, or, you know, wider communities around us in the cities that we orbit uh, that we're only kind of concerned about ourselves or things like business. Sometimes we're just distracted. We're distracted by our phones. We're distracted with, you know, kids' schedules and lives, um, and we stay busy almost to say that we have value in a post-industrialist society. You know, we keep working or we keep moving. Um, And safety, too, is is particular to the suburbs in that, you know, the suburbs, at least post-war American suburbs, are created kind of as a way to keep everybody safe, to move away from the quote-unquote perils of the city. Um, 
And so you see in suburbs, particularly this idea of I have to keep me and my own safe. Um, and so I have to withdraw from people from hurt um, for the chance that someone else's story might impinge upon my own. Um, but the gospel call breaks down all of those barriers and says, we repent, we live out of who Jesus says we are as his beloved children. Um, and then we move forward in rhythms of hospitality and vulnerability and things that help to create communities um, so that grace and healing can come. Well, let's talk about how um, those of us who live in the suburbs, and I live in the city, but I relate so much to what you have written. (laughs) um, How do we begin to find holy in the place where we live that, as you've just described, so often defines what our priorities and values are, even unconsciously? Right. Yeah. I I think a lot of the book is, too, is just trying to say, hey, let's talk about this, because a lot of it is just kind of our autopilot Mm -hmm. of our place. Um, But I think, you know, some really small steps. I talk a lot about in the book about starting small and staying put. So choosing to not, you know, move to the bigger house or upgrade the car or move neighborhoods because that's what everyone else is doing and to stay put and to start in really small things. So a lot of that for me has looked like walking. So I think when we walk, we actually see the people around us. We can take regular walks in our neighborhood um, because I think I will tend to view my neighborhood in this abstract, generic sort of sense. But if I'm walking, I actually see people. And then as I see people, I'm able to engage in just friendly conversation that can eventually lead on to relationship, that can lead on to kind of intimacy and, a, you know, conversation about Jesus along the road once you have developed a relationship. So I think walking is really a very small way that you can just put that on your calendar um, to get to know your place. And then secondly is eating. And I think we've really lost the art of hospitality. Mm. And there's something really beautiful about being welcomed into someone's space. And I encourage people, it can be really easy. You can grab a Costco lasagna. You can, you know, do something outside with a neighborhood block party to kind of take the edge off. There's so many things you can do just to simply create community because community always is created around food. So, Um, invite people in, maybe give yourself a challenge with a group, say, hey, let's try to do this once a month and see where we are. And um, you can all kind of have your own little hospitality challenge. And then lastly, um, I would say to both give and to serve. We always give our money, our resources, and our time uh, to the things we love, whether that's, you know, our kids' soccer team or our local church. Um, We always find money in the budget for the things that we love. And I'm convinced more and more that um, we need to be rooted in our local churches and that are trying to meet the local needs of the people around us. Um, And that means, too, that we don't go to the hipper, cooler church down the street just because, you know, they have lattes or something. But try to invest in your actual community um, because those people are concerned about your actual community. So Mm. and treat the church, too, as not simply another consumer choice, right? Like they have the best worship or whatever it is, but um, that this is the family of God that you get to belong to and suffer with and get angry with and work things out because God's grace is bigger. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things you also recommend is reading the book with others and discussing how it impacts uh, the community. It's wonderful to read it on your own, but I think getting together with others in your community who mm-hmm. are like-minded, who really want to find holy in the suburbs, mm-hmm. uh, how you as a community can can broaden your, your impact uh, by following some of the things you've just described. Yeah, it definitely makes a great like small group study for churches mm-hmm. and neighborhoods and friends and to have other people who are rooting for you, who can be there when you make mistakes and cheer you on when you're nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because what you've described for some of us is just terrifying. The thought right. of trying to organize something in our neighborhood, but love yeah. trumps terror. And if we mm. <laughs> if we can muster up enough love and have a God's perspective on the people that he's yeah. placed in our neighborhoods, and maybe we can step out beyond our own capacity and in the in the process, come to appreciate God's enabling us to, to mm-hmm. do more than we are able on our own. Yes, yes, that's great. Well, I really appreciate the book and the challenge to those who live in the suburbs and those of us who may not live there precisely, but have the the same mentality. Finding holy in the suburbs, living faithfully in the land of too much. Ashley Hales, thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, you are welcome. It's been a pleasure. And Merry Christmas. Thank you. You too. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The book, by the way, is uh, published by InterVarsity Press, is available in bookstores, Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. 
We're just about five o'clock. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. In the five o'clock hour, we're going to continue winding through some of the day's news, but we're also going to hear from Bob Welch. He's the author of 52 Little Lessons from A Christmas Carol. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Coming up later this hour, we'll hear from Bob Welch. He is the author of 52 Little Lessons from the, A Christmas Carol. Looking forward to that, um, that conversation coming up in our next segment. By the way, portions of The Georgine Rice Show today are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, today's surprising announcement that the U.S. will quickly withdraw all its troops from Syria is the stuff of nightmares for many of the Kurds living under the protection of U.S. forces and the American-backed Syrian Democratic Forces. Everyone is upset, sad, and afraid, says one SDF, that's a Syrian Defense Force member, from the Kurdish-dominant Syrian city of Kobane. Uh, It's an historic mistake. We wanted to be part of America. We are surrounded by enemies, and ISIS isn't even finished yet. Well, most who spoke to uh, media outlets were um, scared to use their names or publish their faces in case the Assad-controlled Syrian regime retakes the area and retaliates against those who have spoken out. But most of all, the millions in the region left in limbo are concerned about strikes from the Turkish side of the border. Now, this would certainly be a gift, Christmas or otherwise, to the uh, Russians, to the Iranians, and to the Turks, one, um, uh, one would, I think, rightly suggest. Uh, In his words, it is an ultimate betrayal by the United States. People are crying. They uh, can taste the displacement that will come. They know it will be cold winter and their first after ISIS. Now, the uh, the people who are most concerned certainly are the Kurds, the Yazidis and the Christians all of whom are most vulnerable in this area. Well, earlier this year, Turkish-backed forces took control of the Kurdish-dominant town of Afrin, uh, prompting a quagmire for the United States as many were forced to abandon their posts fighting ISIS and fight for Afrin, a fight that was ultimately lost. In recent days, Turkish President uh, Erdogan has threatened to imminently launch a similar offensive against the Kurdish troops trained and equipped by the U.S. to battle ISIS. Well, Turkey is... um, issued uh, Turkey's issue rather is that elements of the SDF are members of the People's Protection Units, a military force generally considered an offshoot of the Kurdish Workers Party, which has waged an uh, on and off separatist war against Turkey since the 1980s. Well, the PKK is a designated terrorist organization both in Turkey and the United States, and the YPG's involvement in the region has been a hot point of uh, contention between Turkish government and the U.S. It is, in a word, a mess. And there's a great deal of fear among our allies there if the United States were to withdraw what their future would look like. Now, we saw that when we withdrew uh, in Iraq and the suffering that followed there as well. This announcement made uh, that came as something of a surprise to many. We'll see what actually happens. The president was very critical of uh, Barack Obama, who announced uh, the reduction and withdrawal of troops in uh, Iraq, saying that you don't forecast ahead of time what you're going to do and give the enemy an opportunity um, to respond. And this is precisely what President Trump has now done. So we'll see what uh, happens at this point. Well, a three-judge panel on the Federal Court of Appeals in D.C. denied a nonprofit's attempt to force the IRS to release President Trump's tax returns. It was a unanimous uh, uh, riling. The uh, D.C. Court of Appeals said not all records can be accessed by the public through the Freedom of Information Act request and affirmed a lower court's decision to dismiss the Electronic Privacy Information Center's lawsuit, which sought Trump's income tax records. No one can demand to inspect another's tax records, uh, said a George W. Bush appointee on the court in the majority ruling. And the IRC, the Internal Revenue Code, confidentiality protections extend to the ordinary taxpayer and the president alike. Meanwhile, the economic outlook hasn't been quite as rosy lately, and so the Fed is stepping back just a bit. The Federal Reserve raised its key interest rate today for a fourth time this year, but lowered its forecast to two hikes in 2019 amid the recent stock market sell-off and uncertain growth prospects. The economy has continued to perform well, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said at the news conference this afternoon. But he added, we have seen developments that may signal some softening. In early 2018, we saw a rising trajectory for growth 
growth. Today, we see growth moderating ahead. Well, the central bank's uh, latest move, which comes after the president's repeated criticism of the Fed rate hikes, is expected to set off a domino effect across the country, bumping up rates on credit cards, home equity lines of credit and adjustable rate mortgages. As expected, the Fed raised the federal funds rate, which uh, is what banks charge each other for overnight loans by a quarter point to a range of 2.25 to 2.5 percent. It marked the central bank's ninth hike since 2015. And U.S. stocks overcame a late session uh, retreat that wiped out the day's uh, gains to close higher as investors waited to see if the Federal Reserve would raise interest rates, which, as I've just said, they have. All major equity indexes were up from the session opening, but about an hour before closing, uh, surrendered those gains after Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said Democrats had rejected a short-term spending bill. Then, shortly before the closing bell, all three major indexes turned positive. The Fed's uh, two-day meeting concluded today with an announcement about whether the the bank will raise the key interest rates, something that's been expected and feared by investors. The president also tweeted to urging the Fed to f- uh, feel the market as it mulls um, an interest rate hike. They did so, but perhaps not quite as uh, much as the president would have uh, preferred. And this year started with a reminder that we can't uh, Take the safety of our children for granted, and Washington has ended the year by taking the issue seriously. The Federal Commission on School Safety released its final report on Tuesday and recommended the removal of federal guidance that's cast the specter of federal investigation over school districts since 2014. The report calls for rescinding federal directives on student su- uh, suspension and expulsions uh, that were based on specious legal grounds and have had trouble results, um, troubling results rather in schools around the country. The Trump administration created the commission after the tragic event on the 14th of February at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Broward County, Florida. Among the commission's responsibilities was to consider whether to recommend that Washington rescind federal guidance issued under the previous administration in 2014 that micromanaged local school discipline policies. Billed as policy guidance to schools to prevent discrimination against minority students, the Obama administration's Dear Colleague letter also contained instructions on how to limit student interaction with law enforcement and alternatives to exclusionary discipline. Um, the uh, the agency level guidance stands out because it violated federal rules regarding congressional approval for such action. And a letter drafted by the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty and signed by state-based research institutes questioned the Dear Colleague letter's use of disparate impact. The federal guidance used this legal theory to threaten schools with investigations if schools discipline students from certain races more often, even if the same students broke rule more, rules rather more frequently than their peers. In following the guidance, difficult and even dangerous students can remain in class at the expense of other students, and many suggest that was the case at Marjorie Stoneman. Educators in districts following the federal letter, such as Oklahoma City and Hillsborough, Florida, report school safety has deteriorated, and a study of Philadelphia schools found that students' achievement suffered among the peers of offending students when schools limited exclusionary discipline. The Stoneman-Douglas tragedy exposed the fact that Broward's, uh, Broward County student conduct policy predate the federal letter and may have even inspired the guidance. Many of the same provisions and approaches to limited exclusionary discipline are found in both documents. The district safety net proved to have holes too big to stop a student with a record of threats and assaults from committing uh, that violence. There are some takeaways from the report. I don't have time to get into it uh, right now, but you might want to check that out because it's rather interesting to see what they're recommending moving forward to uh, assure the safety of students in public education facilities. 15 minutes after 5 o'clock is our time. Up next, we'll talk with Bob Welch, author of 52 Little Lessons from a Christmas Carol. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Afternoon and welcome to the final segment of the Wednesday edition of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, God is dead. The author has now died. Well, the truth is, God isn't dead, but the author who famously declared he is, is Thomas um, Altizer. He passed away, though few people took note of it. He was the subject of the April 8th, 1966 cover story of Time magazine. The black background and bold red letters shouted out, is God dead? Time chose the Easter season to roll out this gem. Well, some things haven't changed. 
After Altizer uh, received his Ph.D. in the history of religions from the University of Chicago in 1955, he wanted to become an Episcopal priest, but they didn't want him. He flunked the psychiatric exam. He later explained why. Here is what he said in his 2006 memoir, Living the Death of God. Shortly before this examination, I was in a turbulent condition. While crossing the midway, I would experience violent tremors in the ground. And I was visited by a deep depression, one that occurred again and again throughout my life, but now with particular intensity. During this period, I had perhaps the deepest experience of my life and one that I believe profoundly affected my vocation as a theologian and even my theological work itself. This occurred late at night while I was in my room. I suddenly awoke and became truly possessed and experienced an epiphany of Satan, which I have never been able fully to deny an experience in which I could actually feel Satan consuming me. And again, I'm quoting him, absorbing me into his very being as though this was the deepest possible initiation and bonding and the deepest and yet most horrible union. Well, a decade after his uh, satanic possession, he declared the death of God. And it's not hard to connect the dots. Well, he has now himself died and perhaps for the first time. And I hope that's not the case. Learn that God is not. Well, things are getting worse for all people of faith in China. First, we have the news that China had built large-scale re-education camps for Uyghur and Kazakh Muslims in the far western part of the country. The BBC has reported that hundreds of thousands of Muslims are separated from their families and forced to attend retraining classes. Secondly, we had the news that China began passing new stricter laws on church registration this year, which negatively impact all areas of church life. Now we have reports this fall of China's government closing churches and removing public crosses. Well, this Christmas season, people should be mindful, praying and spreading the word about violations of religious freedom around the world. And in fact, there will be a prime opportunity for us to focus on those who suffer for their faith and um, preparing ourselves for the possibility, either as missionaries or here at home, for facing the kinds of challenges that we only read about today. Mission Connection is coming up on January 18th and 19th this year. It's going to be in Tualatin at Rolling Hills Community Church, and the lineup of speakers will help us to consider what the Scripture makes very clear, that there will be those among us who will suffer because of our faith. Now, for the most part, most of us have suffered very little for professing Christ. We live in America, and even though we are seeing uh, greater pressures in terms of the free exercise of religion in our culture, most of us have faced very little pushback. But that day may come, and uh, the Mission Connection 2019 asked the question, worth it? And we're going to talk about, examine, reflect on those who suffer for their faith and their answer to that question Is it worth it for them to suffer such great loss? Uh, And what can we learn from their testimonies and their example? Again, that's Mission Connection, the 18th and 19th of January. Admission is free. That has always been the case. But this year, it started a couple of years ago, you must pre-register online. So go to missionconnection.org for more information. And by the way, connection is spelled with an X rather than a T, Mission Connection. You can Google it or go to the website directly and learn more about uh, that opportunity. Again, free of charge. This is a gift from local area churches who underwrite the cost and make this um, wonderful missions conference available. And by the way, it has spread. The model has spread in various places, not only across the country, but in other parts of the world as well. So it's really a a stellar uh, event for those who are mission-minded, whether or not they feel called to go um, near or far, they feel called to support. All of us, though, have a role to play in the Great Commission, and this is a great opportunity to listen very carefully to what the Holy Spirit might be saying to you. Well, I talked about the Chinese church and the fact that many have been closed. One particularly large church, one of the earlier churches in China, has now been closed a week after a prominent pastor there released his viral letter on faithful disobedience amid a government raid on his church. The communist authorities there once again shut down worshipers from Chengdu's Early Rain Covenant Church, one of the most prominent unregistered churches in the country, as well as Guangzhou's uh, church, one of its first underground church uh, Christian communities. On Sunday, 60 police and religious affairs officials interrupted weekly gatherings, uh, ultimately closing the church, seizing materials, taking cell phones from attendees, according to Asia News. Halfway through the children's Bible class, they heard footsteps of dozens of police officials 
uh, stomping up the stairs, uh, one member said, according to the South China Morning Post. They read out law enforcement notices declaring our venue was an illegal gathering that had engaged in illegal publishing and illegal fundraising and confiscated all Bibles. Uh, I, I think back on the Bibles that I helped others smuggle into the country and wonder if any of them were among those who were confiscated. The Protestant congregation, which now draws more than 5,000 people to worship each week, was founded in the 1970s by the late Pastor Samuel Lamb. It represents one of the few churches in China dating back to before the Cultural Revolution. It has survived through it all. Ahead of uh, Christmas, Chinese authorities have continued their ongoing crackdown on underground Protestant churches, which do not belong to the government-sanctioned three-self-patriotic movement and are illegal under communist rule. The activity has spurred further concern by U.S. officials and American Christians. The previous Sunday, December the 9th, officials shut down Early Rain Covenant Church, arresting more than a dozen Christians, including Pastor Wang Yi. After he was detained, the church released Yi's statement explaining and defending his nonviolent resistance to China's evil and wicked rulers. I firmly believe that Christ has called me to carry out this faithful disobedience through a life of service under this regime that opposes the gospel and persecutes the church, he concluded. This is the means by which I preach the gospel, and it is the mystery of the gospel which I preach. Prior to his arrest, he insisted that in the event of government interference, the church continues to gather with their church locked and guarded by police. Fifty to 60 people gather for worship outside this week, only to once again be halted and arrested by officials. And yet they committed themselves to gathering. World Magazine reported from China. A group of about 50 or 60 early rain members held a service in a nearby Riverside Park, singing hymns, praying and reciting the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Three of Early Rain's church plants have also suffered persecution over the past week, World wrote. One lost access to their building, one preacher was detained, and another was put under house arrest. At least 10 Early Rain leaders remain in custody, according to news updates. Those that have been released relayed accounts of being shackled, starved, and tortured while in detention. Lord, look at the injustice done against your children, read a prayer request from Early Rain, shared by the ministry uh, China Aid. This country is trampling on the dignity of your children, but these children are the apple of your eye. You will heal their wounds with your loving hands and teach us in the midst of this suffering, the love of God and the endurance of Christ. Lord, come quickly, end quote. Well, Beijing's largest unregistered house church, 1,500-member Zion Church, was closed in September after refusing a government directive to install security cameras in the sanctuary. This month, another congregation in the Chinese capital, Cathedral of the Immaculate, has been shut down indefinitely for repairs, in quotes. Some Catholics consider the repairs to be a veiled attempt to hamper Christmas celebrations which attract thousands of people, even non-Christians, according to Asia News. Others see the repairs as necessary, but question the timing during the holiday season. As was reported by Christianity Today, government activity against the growing decades-old underground church movement in China has risen under the current administration, led by President Xi Jinping. China isn't backing away from the religious persecution. It seems to be expanding, said Sam Brownback, the U.S. ambassador at large for international religious freedom last week, when China once again appeared on the State Department's countries of particular concern list of the world's worst religious freedom violators. In February, the Communist Party of China officially implemented a wave of uh, tighter regulations designed to preserve Chinese culture and party authority against ideological threats, and they consider Christianity to be an ideological threat. The Chinese government is working furiously to recreate the church in its image, wrote Christianity Today editor-in-chief Mark Galley in an op-ed last month. Regulations announced last year formalized policy that has, in practice, been in effect for some years now. Religious leaders are required to conduct religious activities in the Chinese context, practice core socialist values, carry forward the fine traditions of the Chinese nation, and actively explore religious thought, which confirm, conforms rather to the reality in China. In certain provinces, the um, uh, the CPC has the Communist Party of China has campaigned to remove Christian symbols from Christians homes and replace them with pictures of the president restricted Christian education for children disrupted worship by removing crosses from church buildings um, barring access or destroying them altogether. 
It's in this context that Pastor Yi issued his 2,000-word declaration against the government's attempt to restrict his ministry and the work of Christians across China. Regardless of what crime the government charges me with, he writes, whatever filth they fling at me, as long as this charge is related to my faith, my writings, my comments, and my teachings, it is merely a lie and temptation of demons, he wrote in a letter posted by China Partnership. I categorically deny it. I will serve my sentence, but I will not serve the law. I will be executed, but I will not plead guilty. Moreover, I must point out that persecution against the Lord's church and against all Chinese people who believe in Jesus Christ is the most wicked and most horrendous evil of Chinese society. This is not only a sin against Christians, it is also a sin against all non-Christians, for the government is brutally and ruthlessly threatening them and hindering them from coming to Jesus. There is no greater wickedness in the world than this. Pray for the church in China and consider Mission Connection 2019. I want to thank James Blend for producing and engineering today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.